You may be seated. We find your way back to Galatians chapter 2. I would echo what Gordon said earlier and say that it is uh, good to be back with you. It has only been two weeks, but it feels like a month. And I, w- I would swear, <laughs> I would swear that my lifeblood is somehow vested in this pulpit because I sort, of, I sort of felt like I was half alive the last couple of weeks. Just, I love being here with you. I love the Word. And I hope and I pray uh, that God would bless you tremendously as we open up His Word together this morning. A couple of weeks ago, what seems like it was 12 weeks ago, we covered the second half of Galatians chapter 2, and I really thought very seriously about moving on to Galatians chapter 3, but I just couldn't. The the text that we read just a moment ago from verses 15 to 21 is, without a doubt, one of the greatest passages in all of Scripture. Because in it, Paul declares what is the greatest news in the history of the world. And I simply need another week to at least attempt to unpack the glory that is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And also, on a side note, the Reformed Protestant in me simply can't, can't pass over Galatians 2.16 without mentioning Martin Luther. So, what I want to do this morning is to share how Martin Luther came to rediscover the doctrine that Paul sets forth here in Galatians 2, 15-21, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, a doctrine which had been obscured and veiled within the church for centuries. And I want to share with you this morning why Luther's story matters for us today, why his struggle is our struggle, and the solution that he found is the solution for us as well. His rescue is our rescue. And then I want to preach through these verses and to explore this truth in order that we may know and enjoy and treasure the freedom of the gospel of justification by faith alone that Luther came to know and to treasure as well. So that's where we're headed this morning. I'm going to ask if you would bow in prayer with me and ask God's blessing upon this time. Our great God and Father, we have worshipped you this morning. In spirit and in truth, we have declared that you alone are holy, you alone are eternal, you are merciful to the core, and your mercy and your righteousness and your justice and your holiness are nowhere more manifest and more evident, they nowhere shine forth so radiantly than in the truth of how you are both the just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. So Lord, as we seek to unpack the truths found in this text, would you help us? Would you bind Satan whose goal is to veil the gospel so that it doesn't make sense and is not believed? Would you bind him in order that we may glory in the truths that we're going to read this morning, in order that we may know What it means to be crucified with Christ. And yet no longer to live. For it is Christ who lives in us. And the life that we live in the flesh. We live by faith. In the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Forbid it, Lord. 
that we would nullify the grace of God and the cross of Christ this morning by seeking to add our works to the perfect justification that is ours by faith in Christ. Forbid it. Set us free this morning. That's what I have prayed for and it's what I pray for now. I pray that you would set people free through this glorious news. To the glory of your Son we pray. Amen. Well, it was early in July of 1505 when a young German law student was riding on horseback in the midst of a violent thunderstorm. He was returning to the University of Erfurt in Germany after a visit home. And with the wind howling and the rain pouring and lightning crashing all around, a sudden bolt of lightning struck the ground near where he was riding and threw him from his horse. And absolutely struck with terror at the thought of death and of the divine judgment that he knew would follow, this young man cried out to St. Anne, who was the patron saint of minors like his father. And he vowed to become a monk if only she would preserve him and protect him and deliver him from the storm. And he survived and true to his word, two weeks later he dropped out of law school making his father very unhappy. And he enrolled in the Augustinian monastery there in Erfurt. Never was there a more dedicated friar, a more dedicated brother than young Martin. In his own words, he wrote this, quote, I was a good monk, and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his good works, it was I. All my brothers bear me out. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils and prayers and reading and other work. And as you read Luther's story, you've got to come to this realization. You've got to ask yourself this question. Why? Why did Luther torture himself so? Why did he perform all of these diligent acts of piety? Why did he strive so hard in these spiritual disciplines? You don't have to look very far before he'll tell you the answer. He was haunted day and night by a debilitating fear of God, the righteous judge. And so by performing all of these holy works, Luther hoped somehow to atone for his sins and to reconcile himself to the God whom he knew to only be an angry judge. Year after year in the monastery, Luther was tormented by this growing unrest in his soul. He was haunted. He could put his finger on what it was. He was haunted by the terror of the righteousness of God. He knew that God was a righteous judge who required of mankind a righteousness that Luther knew he couldn't perform. God requires of us a perfect and pristine righteousness. And yet the harder that Luther worked, the more he fasted, the more he prayed, the more he confessed, the more he read. The more he became aware that he simply could not submit to God. He could not produce the righteousness that God required. And when I say he tried everything, I mean he tried everything. Confession. He would make daily confession to the priest. 
It was said that Luther would spend hours in the confessional booth trying to name every sin of word and thought and attitude and deed and sins that he committed and sins that he thought about committing and sins that he would have committed had he thought about committing them. Since the last time that he was in the confessional, hours he would spend absolutely wearing out the ears of his confessor. When he had named all that he could remember, he would leave the confessional, he'd begin walking down the hall, and then some, one would suddenly pop into his mind, and he would whirl around and run back into the, into the booth before the next person could come, and he would start confessing again. His confessor once humorously told him that he should go away until he committed some sin worth confessing. He would fast for days on end, and in those stone cells of the monastery, in the frigid German nights, he would, he would sleep without any covering. He would later write that the, the turmoil that he had inflicted upon his body in those years in the monastery did permanent damage to his body, to his digestive system. And for what? For what reason is he, is he enduring the elements and, and fasting for days on end without a crumb or a drop of water? Why? He even... As a last-ditch effort to save his soul and assuage his guilt, he made a pilgrimage to Rome, to the eternal city in 1510, thinking that if this pilgrimage and all of the indulgences that were promised in the fulfillment of it, if this didn't earn him salvation and relieve the torment from the sense of his guilt, then nothing would. And when he got to Rome, he visited all of the holy shrines. He paid homage to all of the holy relics. He climbed the Scala Sancta, the holy steps, and he would kneel and kiss each one and repeat over each one the Paternoster, the Our Father. And yet he left Rome more disillusioned and more aware of his alienation from God than ever before. Luther performed every work imaginable in order to save himself from sin, in order to earn the favor of a God whom he knew not as father but as judge and an angry one at that. And yet all of the works only left him feeling more empty, more tormented, more guilt-ridden, and more terrified of God's righteous judgment than ever before. When he returned home in 1511, Luther's superior at the monastery was a man named Johann von Staupitz, who unwittingly sparked the Protestant Reformation. He concluded that a change in scenery might do Luther some good, so he had Luther transferred to a, to a new university that was starting in a little town, a little hamlet called Wittenberg, Germany, where Luther was to earn his doctorate and begin teaching and, and, and preaching in the university and in, and, par- and in the parish church and pastoring in the, in the small parish there in Wittenberg. And it was during that time, during those years, that Luther had his first real encounter with the pages of Scripture. 1513, he began lecturing through the Psalms. 1515, he taught through the book of Romans. 1516, he embarked upon Paul's letter to Galatia. It was while studying for these scriptures in preparation for his lectures and his sermons that an incredible and dramatic change began to take place in Luther's heart and in his mind. It was late one night in the tower of the monastery there in Wittenberg as he was meditating upon one verse and one phrase from one verse at that. Romans chapter 1 and verse 17, which says this, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
God opened Luther's eyes and he finally understood the doctrine of justification sola fide, by faith alone. I want to read to you what Luther wrote about that encounter with with justification in the Tower of Wittenberg. He wrote this, and I quote, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans and nothing stood in my way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. I would pause here and say, that's why it didn't make any sense. He couldn't understand how that's good news. It says in the gospel, in the good news, the righteousness of God is revealed. And the righteousness of God was not good news to a sinner like Luther. He goes on, he says, my situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, listen, I did not love a righteous and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against Him. How dare you demand of me what I can't give? Some of you have been there. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the righteousness of God and the statement that the righteous shall live By his faith. And I grasped that the righteousness of God in the gospel is that righteousness by which, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through the open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning, and whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became for me the gateway to heaven. And I want you to listen closely to what Luther's saying. He knew that his biggest problem was the righteousness of God. And what he found that night in the gospel was that his only solution was the righteousness of God. In other words, he knew that God was a righteous and holy God who would bring every sin and every transgression of his law into judgment and he would deal with it righteously. That is, he would punish sinners for the wages of sin is death and the soul that sins shall die. He knew that. Perhaps more than anyone before or since, Luther was a man who was keenly aware of the wickedness that resided within his own heart. He was aware of his own unrighteousness and his guilt and his sin. And so he trembled before, he feared, listen to me beloved, he hated the monk, the priest, the prayer. He hated the God who was righteous. And some of you are in the same situation, but you're not so honest as to admit it. He hated this righteous God who required of him what he knew he could not give. But what Luther found that night was that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Not the righteousness by which God judges the unrighteous. But the righteousness which God gives as a gift of his grace to those who believe. In other words, God freely gives that which God righteously requires. It was almost seven years ago that I became acquainted with the life and the 
work of Martin Luther, and I'd been, I'd been absolutely captivated by him ever since. He was a cantankerous old badger who had all sorts of warts, and if you read his, if you read his writings, you, you will find some things that you wouldn't quote to your mother. But I love him. <laughs> and the reason why I love him is because I saw in his struggle for assurance, the assurance of God's grace, my own battle for assurance. And at, a, at the time, I had very little confidence that I was loved and accepted by this God that I knew loved and accepted other people. I just didn't know if he loved and accepted me. And the more that I worked and the more that I tried and the harder that I pursued the disciplines, I'm just going to read the Bible more and I'm just going to confess my sin more. I'm just going to witness more. Witness to what? The God that I don't really like. The more I tried, the more alienated from him I felt. God seemed to me more of a hard-driving drill sergeant than a loving and merciful father that others spoke of him about. The more I worked, the harder I tried, the more condemned that I felt. Consequently, like Luther, if I was to be terribly honest, I could not love God. I could only fear Him. And I wonder how many of you this morning would be willing to admit to being in the same condition. Love God. You'll love a God who doesn't like you. You know that God is righteous. No problem with that. You know that he commands you to be righteous. You have no problem with that. The problem is you know that you're unrighteous. There's a big problem with that. Your most pressing and desperate need is a righteousness that is not your own. A righteousness that you cannot produce by trying harder to be better and to do more. That's what you need. You need a pristine and perfect righteousness to enter through the gates of heaven and stand in the presence of a perfect and pristine God. And that perfect and pristine righteousness you cannot produce because as you look within your heart, as you gaze into the mirror of the law, you will find that within you are anything but perfect and pristine. And as we all know, a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Filthy, depraved, wicked. That's the fruit of the flesh. Even... Our most righteous acts performed in the flesh are but filthy garments in the sight of the perfect and pristine God. Every good thing, every Bible verse I ever memorized before I trusted in Christ was stained by sin and selfishness. Trying to earn God's favor by my memorization. Every attendance in church is stained by sin and selfishness because you're trying to earn God's favor by your being here unless you come here walking in faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Whatever is not of faith is sin, says Paul. That's why, that's why there's no hope in your righteousness. It's all stained. So what are we going to do? It's to us that I declare this morning that God offers us freely a righteousness that is not our own. 
a righteousness that is not stained, a righteousness that is perfect and pristine, a righteousness that was accomplished by his perfect and pristine son. God offers you this morning to take off the filthy garments of your sin and the filthy garments of your own righteousness. He's going to take them off and he's going to clothe you in the perfect righteousness of his beloved son. And listen to me, listen to me. And he's going to do it freely and he's going to do it graciously. He's going to do it gratuitously. He's going to do it frighteningly with no part of you. He calls you merely to believe. Because the righteous shall live by faith. This is a gift which is truly and gloriously and unsettlingly free. This is the doctrine of justification sola fide. By faith alone. Which is the greatest news ever heard in the history of the world. And it's declared to you this morning. So we're going to explore this doctrine from the from verses 15 to 21, by means of those four questions that you see on the back of your bulletin. Four questions, and we're going to try to get to the heart of what it means to be justified by faith. The first question is this, what is justification? It's the first time that the word has appeared in, in the book of Galatians thus far. Galatians 2.16, where Paul says to Peter, beginning in 15, You know, Peter, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. All right, so what's he talking about? What is this justification thing? Well, to justify means to declare righteous it does not mean to make righteous it does not mean to help make righteous it doesn't mean to infuse righteousness it means to declare to be righteous it is a forensic term it's a legal term it has to do with a legal declaration it's the language of a court of law justification is the legal verdict handed down by the judge of all the earth and it's a verdict verdict which says this Tim Hopped, the sinner who once stood before this judge condemned and unclean and under the curse of his wrath is now, by the declaration of the sovereign judge, acquitted and forgiven and cleansed and is the recipient of his divine blessing. Just like that. It's a forensic, legal declaration that is, irre- it, it is irreversible. He doesn't revoke that declaration. Once declared, that declaration stands. So how can this be? I'm a sinner. That's not news, right? I'm a sinner. God says I'm righteous. What gives? You see the problem? How is this not a legal fiction, as some people claim it to be? How, how can the righteous judge declare an unrighteous sinner to be righteous and, and himself not become unrighteous in doing so? If, if we had a judge here in Christian County who looked at, at criminals and said, not guilty, what would you think of that judge? <laughs> He's a criminal. 
himself. So how can God do this? How can God be both just and the justifier of the ungodly? The answer is that justification is grounded in what one early church writer called the sweet exchange. Justification is not a legal fiction at all. It is, in fact, a real transaction which has really taken place. It is is grounded in a real event, a two-way transfer. God transferred my unrighteousness to my substitute, who is Jesus Christ. All of my sin and guilt and shame and unrighteousness was transferred to Jesus, and God punished Jesus for all of my sin. Jesus paid the wages of sin in my place. He paid the penalty that my sin deserved. He suffered the punishment that I had merited. He absorbed all of God's wrath that was due to me. That's one of the transfers. But there's another one. God takes all of Jesus' righteousness and obedience, and he transfers it to me by faith alone by this exchange God's justice is satisfied he remains just no sin of mine has been unpunished no debt of mine is unpaid is all dealt with in perfect righteousness the soul that sins shall die I died in Christ so he is just And I'm justified. And no law has been broken. And he remains perfectly righteous. I have full atonement for my sins by virtue of a death that I did not die. And I am accepted in the presence of God by virtue of a righteousness that I did not attain. Beloved, that's the doctrine of justification. And it is real. You can trust it. It is grounded in a real sacrifice of a real Savior upon a real cross as He offered a real atonement in real obedience to a real God. Real. And because it is real, God can justly look upon a justified sinner who is me and He can say of me what is true of Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Look at him. Isn't he cute? And if you'd have seen the way that I lost patience with my son this week, you'd say, that's not cute. That's wretched. God is pleased with me this morning. In spite of my sin because in his sight I'm wearing a robe a robe of brilliant and spotless righteousness that covers all of my impatience and all of my sin justification now second question how 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 is a sinner justified well if you've been paying attention at all over the last four weeks or so or the last four minutes You know the answer to that question. Paul answers it explicitly in Galatians 2.16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through, say it with me, faith. Faith. Not of the works, of faith in Jesus Christ. Sinners are justified by faith and by faith alone apart from works of any kind. But that raises a question. 
Okay? It was actually raised in, in Wednesday night in my study on Jude. And we, had, we came to the conclusion that not all faith is faith. There's biblical faith, there's saving faith, and there's demon faith, false faith. So it's saving faith that justifies. So let's define what that is. Biblical faith, saving faith, is not some half-hearted, dispassionate, mental assent to certain doctrinal truths. That's not what it is. Oh yeah, I remember hearing about that one time in Sunday school like 40 years ago. That's not what it is. Saving faith is wholehearted, listen, desperate, day-by-day trust in the finished work of Christ and the promise of the gospel. If you have that faith, you're justified. If you have that faith, you're deceived. Now, where do we get this? I get it from two places in Galatians 2 and from one place in Philippians 3. There's more, but those are where I want to go this morning. The first place is in Philippians or in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 15 through 16. 15 through 16. All right? We're going to talk this morning about two components of saving faith. The first component is this. Saving faith involves a relinquishing of all competing claims to righteousness. You cannot have saving faith if you're holding on to some other righteousness but the righteousness of Christ. You've got to let it go. There is a letting go aspect to saving faith. Okay? As long as I am still under the illusion that I have any righteousness inherent within me, I, I will not be desperate for that righteousness which comes from God. As long as I'm holding on to some semblance of hope that maybe on the last day I I will be found good enough because I tried really hard and I was better than ten other people that I know, I'm not desperately clinging with both hands to the righteousness of Jesus. I have to come to the place of repentance. Listen to me, beloved. If you came in this morning guilty before God, here's the first thing that has to happen. You have to come to the place where you confess that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, as Paul confesses in Romans 7, 18. Nothing good dwells in you. I'm sure you all are lovely people, but as far as righteousness before God is concerned, you, nothing, nothing. Good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. Or you have to come to the place where Isaiah came in Isaiah 64, 6, when he says, even all of my righteousness is but a filthy garment in the sight of God. It doesn't measure up. So even if my best acts are stained with sin, then why would I want to hang on to them and try and drag them and combine them with the righteousness of Jesus and, and go before God with the righteousness of Christ in one hand and my own really hard works in the other. Well, just let it go. Leave it be. You must come to God empty-handed or you will be sent away empty-handed. Where do we get this? Verses 15 and 16, Paul tells Peter that even though they were Jews by nature, born under all of the privileges of the old covenant, the law, the temple, the sacrifices. Look at what he says in verse 16. Nevertheless, we had all of these privileges. Nevertheless, we had come to recognize that none of them 
No amount of law keeping, no amount of sacrificing, no amount of temple worship could justify me before God. I had to seek my justification somewhere else, somewhere outside of the law, somewhere outside of my works. And this is precisely why he says, you know what, Peter, you and me, we sought our justification in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 16, that's what he says. We had all the privileges of being born into the nation of Israel, but we left all of that aside. We relinquished that claim to our right standing before God, and we turned to a different claim altogether. We let go of that so that we could lay hold of Christ and the justification that is by faith and not by the works of the law. They had to relinquish their claim to righteousness through the law in order to be justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Do you see that? Look at verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. In other words, Paul learned through the law the depths of his own wickedness and the inadequacy of his own righteousness and his own human obedience. And he learned that and he relinquished that in order that he may be alive to God. In other words, you can't be alive to the law and alive to God at one and the same time. There's a connective there. I have to die to the law so that I may live to God. Do you see that? It's very important. Saving faith is not just a saying, yes, justification is true. It is saying, yes, justification is true and it's my only hope. You must die to the works of the law in order to live by faith in Christ. Turn with me over just about three books to Philippians chapter 3. You'll see the very same principle at work. Paul is rehearsing in Philippians 3 all of his spiritual accomplishments. Everything that he he might take before God and say, this is why I should get into heaven. He talks about how he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Of the nation of Israel, circumcised on the eighth day. He was a Pharisee, which means he took the law very, very seriously. He was zealous for the law, even to the point of persecuting those who he thought broke the law. Namely, Christians. That was impressive. Law keeping. And notice the very last phrase of Philippians 3.6. As to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. I sort of hear the echoes of Luther in there, don't you? If anyone got to heaven by, by all of these works that good monks do, it would, have been not, it would have been me. That's what Paul's saying. All of these people who keep talking about law, 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 law. If anybody could have gotten to heaven by the keeping of the law, it was me. Blameless. Paul had an armload of law-keeping human righteousness to bring to God and to say, see this? This is why I should be accepted by you. But look what he says in verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Okay? All of that righteousness. I just threw it aside. He goes on, he even goes further. More than that, 
I count all things to be lost in, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. So not only did he let go of an inferior righteousness for a superior righteousness, it's not like he gave away good so that he could have the better. He came to the place where he recognized that his good was filth. Have you come there? There's no way God will accept sinners like you and me on the basis of our own works because even what we thought was good is rubbish. There's that word, so that, again. I'll be. So that, I, I, I dumped all of my law-keeping righteousness off and I, and I turned my back on it because it smells. So that I may get, gain Christ and may be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that's derived from the law, but a righteousness that comes from God and is received by faith. Do you see the connection? It's there in Galatians 2, 15, 16. It's there in Galatians 2, 19. It's there in Philippians 3. It's there all the way through the pages of Scripture. You've got to let go of every other claim to righteousness and acceptance before God before you will be able to lay hold by faith of the righteousness that comes from God. The righteousness of Christ requires two empty hands in order to cling to it by faith. No amount of morality, no amount of church going, Bible reading, aisle walking, prayer praying, nothing of you can bring you to God. You must empty your hands of all other claims of righteousness before God will fill them with His righteousness. So until you recognize that you have no righteousness to offer God, you will never be desperate for the righteousness that comes from God through faith in justification. But after relinquishing all competing claims to righteousness, saving faith then does. So it has an emptying aspect and it has a desperate clinging aspect. Saving faith relies solely upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Again, in Galatians 2.16, Paul says that knowing that he couldn't be justified by his own works or by his own righteousness or by his own law keeping, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. He knew that. He knew that, but then he took the next step of faith and he went to Christ. He believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith. In other words, he clearly says, I relinquished my competing claim to righteousness, and I relied solely upon the righteousness of Jesus. That's the twofold act of saving faith. It is taking off my filthy garments of sin and my filthier garments of righteousness, taking them off, shedding them, letting them be burned at the cross, and allowing God by faith just to robe me in brilliant, pristine white. It is the emptying of my hands, which were holding on to all of my own perceived goodness and morality and deservedness, emptying of all of that and clinging desperately, desperately 
to the cross of Christ as my only hope of forgiveness and the righteousness of Christ as my only hope of acceptance. Augustus Toplady, who wrote one of my favorite hymns ever, in the second verse of his famous hymn, Rock of Ages, he really defines what I'm talking about here. It's at the bottom of your page. It says, nothing in my hand I bring. Nothing. Simply to thy cross I cling. Do you see it? Nothing. Everything. Naked I come to thee for dress. I've taken off all of my filthy garments. And helplessly I look to thee for grace. Foul I to thy fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, where I die. Where do you stand this morning? Have you gone to God with the empty hands of a desperate faith and asked Him to fill them with the perfect righteousness of Jesus? If not, you are not reconciled to God. Just let go. Let go of all of your sin. Let go of all of your efforts. Let go of all of your morality. Let go of all of your half-hearted obedience. And just turn to Christ and throw both arms, empty hands of faith around Him and His cross. And say, I, I need no other plea. I need no other argument. My Hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Not trusting in the sweetest frame. I'm wholly leaning on Jesus' name. Third question. How do the justified live? Often when the gospel of free grace is preached, when justification by faith alone is proclaimed, an accusation is thrown at preachers of free grace that says this. You're just leading people to sin. They threw that at Paul all the time. In other words, you're telling people that they don't have to do anything to be accepted by God. Just believe that Christ has done everything. And Paul says, yes, you've understood me. That's exactly what I'm saying. Well, then where's the motivation to pursue holiness and to live righteously and to obey God? Where's, if there's no carrot dangling in front of the Christian on a stick, why, why would he work? In the 16th century, in reaction to Luther's Reformation, Duke George of Saxony said, you know, you know, the doctrine of justification by faith is a great doctrine to die with, but it's a terrible doctrine to live by. But is that actually true? Do those who are, who are justified freely by God's grace go on to live inevitably lives of dissolute sin? Well, God, or not Paul, answers in verse 16... God forbid. No, no, that's not true. He answers that objection in 17, in 18, in 19, and again in 20, saying that when he and everyone else who has been justified by faith died to the law in order to live to God, a radical change took place. See, it wasn't just a, a, a decision that was made. No, a, a resurrection took place. A death and a resurrection took place in your conversion or else you are not converted it's supernatural. A new man has been raised in the place of the old man that was crucified. 
I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When I came to Christ, I died and a new man was raised. I was raised to walk in a radically new way of life. And it's a life that is marked by two dominant characteristics that it's going to take us the rest of Galatians to work our way through. I just want to mention them this morning. Number one, it's a life that is lived by faith. Not by works, by faith. By faith from first to last, says Paul in Romans 1.17. In other words, faith is not merely the gateway into the Christian life. It is the pathway through the Christian life. I am motivated to pursue holiness... Not out of a sense of reward or fear of punishment, like a slave. I am motivated to pursue holiness out of a deep-seated faith that God loves me. And he manifested his love for me by giving himself on the cross to die for me. In other words, I pursue holiness and obey the commands of a father because I'm a son. Not the, not the commands of a master because I'm a slave. And there's all the difference in the world between the two. The Christian life is not the carrot on the stick approach. Whereby I'm motivated to obedience by the hope of reward. A reward, by the way, which I never get. That's the life of the law. The Christian life is exactly the opposite. The motivation for holiness comes from believing at a deep gut level that I already have my reward. Through faith in Jesus Christ. The carrot of eternal life is mine. And I'm feeding on it day by day. Second, it's a life that is lived in the power of the Spirit. Not only do I have the motivation to be holy, but I now have the power to actually be holy. Unlike those who are, who are still living by the law, who are trudging along chasing the carrot that they'll never reach. Paul says, you know what, it's no longer I who live, but it's the Spirit of Christ who dwells in me. He says, Christ dwells in me. A few verses later in chapter 3, he's going to say, the Spirit resides in me. It's Christ who dwells in me by His Spirit. And the mystery of this indwelling is great, but the effect is undeniable in the lives of those who have been justified. Here's what Paul is saying in Galatians 2.20. The tree of justification bears the fruit of righteousness because it's infused with the sap of the Holy Spirit. Tree of righteousness bearing bad fruit? That's blasphemy in Paul's mind. It's going to take us the rest of Galatians to explore what it means to live by faith in the power of the Spirit. And by the way, I'm just going to tell you at the front end, when we get there to the end of Galatians we still will not have plumbed the depths of what it means to live by the Spirit. But for now, let me, let me just summarize it with a statement that we're going to unpack next time in verses 1 through 5 of Galatians 3. Here it is. The Christian life is begun by faith, and it is completed by faith. The Christian life is begun by the Spirit, and it is completed by the Spirit. It's not a begin by faith, and now we just pull up our bootstraps and we get to work. Because that's what we've got to do. Because that's what Christians do. We read our Bibles and we witness and we go to church. And we got joy about it too. Happy all the day. Now, listen. At the end of the Christian life, when faith and the power of the Spirit have had their effect, the Christian is marked by love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. At the end of your life, if you've been justified by faith and you are indwelt by the Spirit, you're going to be a tree that's full of fruit. Fruit that you would not bear if you're going to live this life by law. Because the opposite of that life is the life of law and works. And the end of that life, at the end of that life, they're not marked by those things, by those fruits. They're marked by fear and hatred and disillusionment. Because I thought this life was supposed to be joyful. And it's not. Bitterness, hypocrisy, because you simply don't have the power to do it. Bad tree can't bear good fruit. And finally, judgment. So don't tell me that justification by faith doesn't result in holiness of life. Justification by faith is the only thing that results in holiness of life. Because the gospel alone can produce true holiness. The law does not produce holiness, only hypocrisy. One final question and we'll be finished. What is justification? The legal declaration from God the righteous judge that a sinner is perfectly righteous before him. Not by his own works, but by faith in the blood and the righteousness of his son. How are we justified? By the twofold act of faith, relinquishing all competing claims to righteousness and with both hands of faith clinging desperately and relying solely upon the blood and the righteousness of Christ. How do the justified live? They live by faith in the power of the Spirit and they bear fruit. Finally, in what do the justified boast? Verse 21, Paul sets forth our two alternatives. I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness came through the law, then Christ died needlessly either justification is all of god's grace grounded solely in the cross of christ or it's by human works and human striving and there's no middle ground philip Ryken states it this way he says quote either salvation comes through the finished work of jesus christ or it comes through human effort but never both and if we can be saved by our own works then Jesus was a false Messiah who died a worthless death on a meaningless cross. In other words, the cross of Jesus Christ is the supreme indictment of your best works. It's the supreme indictment that your righteousness is simply not righteous enough. Christ died because we were unrighteous. So do not nullify the grace of God by adding your own works to the pristine righteousness of Christ. Sometimes I put it like this. Don't try to accessorize the perfect garment of Christ's righteousness. It doesn't need your accessories. Do not negate the cross of Christ by thinking that you added anything to your justification but the sin from which you needed to be saved. Rather, just... Live a life of faith and boast joyfully and willingly in, the, in a grace that is sovereign and a cross that is sufficient. So my plea to you this morning is to make the grace of God your only boast. I have no other plea, I have no other argument, but that God is gracious to sinners like me and so gracious is He that He sent His Son to die upon the cross for each and every one of my sins. 
That's my only hope of going to heaven. And I invite you to get rid of all of your other false hopes and to make that your only hope. Cease your striving. Let go of your grip on your own righteousness and just rest by faith in the perfect and pristine work of Christ. Or to borrow my metaphor from earlier, empty your hands and wrap them both around by faith the cross and just hold on with everything you've got. Don't let go. And when you close your eyes in death, you will awaken before the throne of God and you will find that the filthy robes of sin have been removed. And you will stand before the Father clothed in a pristine and sparkling white. And you will hear Him say the words that your heart has longed to hear from the day of your regeneration. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. This, He'll say to all the hosts of heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, I have, I have prayed that you would set people free today. And I threw out the, the story of Martin Luther, which is my story, and the story of so many others so that people could relate to it and say, yes, I want to love God, but I don't think that he loves me. That he's mad at me. Would you set them free By grace, through the power of your spirit, through the preaching of this gospel, would you open their eyes to behold that you give the righteousness that you require and all that you command them to do is to empty their hands of all other claims of righteousness and just receive it by faith. Just to go to you and to say, all of my righteous acts are as rubbish All of my sin, I want nothing to do with it. Fill my hands with your perfectness. Fill my arms with your righteousness. Justify me. For I cannot justify myself. Lord, would you you cause them to, to be born again? Open their eyes to see this. Open their ears to hear this. Unveil their minds so that they can comprehend this. And beloved, if that is you, then, then, then just rest. Confess to God that you can't justify yourself, though you've tried these many years. And just receive. Let go of the armload of works. Because they're worthless. And wrap both arms around Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Ask the Father to wrap you in the garment of white. And to call you His son, His daughter. Beloved, if you will do that, you will be saved. So do it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Our God and our Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for justification by faith alone. 
and the freedom that it proclaims. Would you make people to experience that freedom this morning? Bring them to faith. We ask this in Jesus' name.